Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Itumama Tambien in Roma. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And this is James, and we're going to talk about one of our favorite directors, Alfonso Cuaron, and two of his films, Itumama Tambien, which came out in 2001. He directed it and co-wrote it with his brother, Carlos Cuaron. And then Roma, which came out in 2018, which he wrote, directed, and was the cinematographer of as well. And editor. And editor, right. It was his first cinematography credit. And it was also the first Mexican film to be nominated for Oscar for Best Picture, as well as win the Oscar for Best Director and Best uh, Cinematography. First, yeah, it was First foreign language film to win Best Director at the Oscars. Oh, excellent. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think he sh- that should have won Best Picture. It lost to Green Book. Yeah, I think Roma was just, you know, I, I think there's still that stigma for giving the Best Picture to a foreign language film as well as sci-fi, stuff like that, horror movies. I think we've been we've been talking about the last few episodes like that. Also, it was a Netflix movie, so I think that maybe older voters were still kind of against the idea of Netflix because this is 2019. 18. 2018. Were so. you not listening? <laughs> so <laughs> scooch me. <laughs> it's not like uh, Irishman, which got nominated recently, but uh, I think that back then, even even just four years ago, there was still a stigma against Netflix movies. Yeah, and Alfonso decided to do a Netflix release with Roma because he knew that more people would see it if it was a Netflix release versus if it was just a theatrical distribution. He wanted as many people in the world as possible to see it. And that definitely happened because Netflix spent about they, – they spent way more money on the marketing of the film – than they did of the film itself because the film's budget was only $15 million, but Netflix spent about 50 to $60 million on its Oscar campaign and marketing campaign because there were billboards everywhere here in L.A., giant billboards everywhere. And that's something that's so rare for an international film to see billboards of in a major city in, in the U.S. I, I can't remember that really happening before then for a foreign language film. And then Itumama Tambien, which came out in 2001, had a budget of $2 million and was a huge success in Mexico. It broke the weekend box office in Mexico and it ended up grossing $33 million worldwide. And both of these films, you could argue, are maybe Cordon's best films besides... I mean, I think Children of Men is hard, up there, it's too. It's hard to say. His filmography is amazing. And, I mean, Prisoner of Azkaban yeah. is arguably the best Harry Potter film from a filmmaking standpoint. So he's just an exceptional director, one of the best talents working today. We're so lucky to have someone like him in filmmaking. And it's hard to pick a favorite movie of his because I love so many of them so much especially Children of Men had a big influence on me when I was younger. Same. Uh, I watched it repeatedly. I watched that many times in my teens and early 20s. But when I saw Roma for the first time, same with Itumama, I watched a lot um, when I was younger. We used to watch this all the time <laughs> when we were, kids. were younger. <laughs> Although you should definitely be an adult when you watch Itumama Tambien. It's very adult. Um, but when I saw Roma for the first time, I was just so stunned and blown away by it and from its power and just the filmmaking and the the storytelling and what it what it meant for Mexico, what it meant for um, Alfonso as well. So I, I I would say Roma might be my favorite film of his. Yeah, it's a genius. You know, when you watch it, it's astounding filmmaking. Both are exceptional filmmaking. But, you know, this is 2018 when his, his craft is like he's in his prime right now. Yeah, I mean, he's firing on all cylinders. He did the camera work and the editing. It's insane. Yeah, and this also, so he won Best Directing. 
He won Best Cinematography as well, and then it also won Best Foreign Language Film of the Year. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Performance for an Actress by Elisa Aparicio, uh, Best Actress Supporting Role, Screenplay, Production Design. It is nominated for just about everything you could think of. And if E2 Mama came out today, it would get nominated for a lot of things. So E2 Mama got nominated for Screenplay by the Corleone Brothers, but they did not win that year. And these films, they're very similar. And we chose these films to go together because they're very much connected. E2 Mama, Tambien, and Roma... Um, there are two perspectives of the same world, different time periods. Itumama takes place in 1999, and the Roma takes place in 1970, 1971. Itumama Tambien tells the story from the perspective of more privileged and higher class Mexicans in Mexico with the backdrop of classism and social divide of the country surrounding them, whereas Roma follows the opposite perspective where we're following the maid of an upper class family with the backdrop of wealth and privilege surrounding her. And he's always added these political and social elements in all of his films, uh, even more as heavily as in Children of Men. Like the sociopolitical themes in that movie are gigantic. And the cool thing about Children of Men is they were predicting things for the 21st century that exactly. did end up happening. Exactly. And with the two Mama Tommy Yen, uh, the characters of Tenoch and Julio, they basically are, I think, uh, surrogates for Alfonso and the way he grew up. You know, uh, uh, privileged, upper class kids. Like they, the president of the country is at their friends their dad's friend's wedding like I mean, this is as high a class as you can get in that country if you if like the the president is just like a person at a social gathering that you would frequent like that's just crazy uh whereas Cleo and Roma she represents you know the lower class um oftentimes the natives of Mexico who uh work more laborious jobs by by generalization and uh, I think that sh- he understood that perspective probably better than anyone having both lived the upper class life and being raised by someone who lived the lower class life. Technically, in Roma, that family is a middle class family. So that even shows you more how how drastic the the wealth disparity is between upper and lower class because the middle class family have made. You can only imagine what it's like to be an upper class family. Oh, yeah, that's true because like they have a, a nice place, but a driveway not big enough for the guy's car. The Galaxy, you, yeah. You know so I mean? they're middle class, which would blow your mind. You know, that's a lot of the population of the United States. And then or it's, it, it's extremely rare for a middle class in America to have a maid or exactly, a Exactly, yeah. That's so, so that's, rare. That's what I mean. The wealth yeah. disparity just between middle class and lower class is immense. Mm-hmm. The wealth gap there, let alone it's a lot different in America. And and then in uh, Itumama Tamien, there's even a social class divide between Tenoch, Tenoch and Julio, which we'll get into later on. But before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedules, personalized videos, Patreon shouts on the show for top tier and Godfather tier patrons, and weekly bonus episodes. Godfather tier patrons also get an extra bonus episode as well as a fun little sticker. We also just launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show to find the success that we found. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. It's right there in the homepage. You can also see all of our content, our merch, custom movie posters. Please follow, subscribe, wherever you're listening. Hit the notification bell. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world. So I think it'd probably be best to talk a little bit about them together, but then we'll go one by one with both of these films because I understand that maybe some people have seen Roma, but they haven't seen Utumama Tambien or vice versa. And then at the end, we'll connect them as well and talk about similarities and similar themes. Yeah, and I also I want to talk about the the talent of Alfonso Cuaron and what he he brings so much to his pictures and 
his his variety of filmmaking because he Itumama Tambien, Children of Men, a Harry Potter movie, uh, Roma, Gravity, and he also did um uh, 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 all English literature adaptation, Great Expectations, which was a modern take of that classic story. Yeah, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Um, it's Gwyneth Paltrow, Ethan Hawke. I just said Gwyneth Paltrow with the, the <laughs> <laughs> an accent. Yeah, I got the Paltrow. I have the rolling R, R the, on my in my mind right now. <laughs> and so just the. The expansiveness of the genres that he tackles as a filmmaker is extremely impressive, especially when you consider not just his entire filmography that I just lifted, listed off, but Itumama and Roma are so different tonally, where Itumama is, it has very serious tones, but it is so fun, so freewheeling, so vulgar and immature and hysterical. And Roma is more personal, honest, authentic. Um, realism is big there and just uh, very powerful. And both films deal with poverty, classism, racism, activism, protests, riots, and both bring immense amounts of realism to the films with Quaron's filmmaking, specifically in Itumama Tambien, lots of handheld. Both films have a ton of long takes. I was shocked. Like, I saw Itumama Tambien, like, in our teens, and we were, like, 15, 16, but I haven't seen it since, and then we watched it last week. Very long takes. Tons of yeah. long takes, which gives is a testament to the talented actors in his films because i mean diego luna and then gael and then um maribel maribel vidal sorry what's verdu verdu sorry maribel verdu are operating in these long take scenes that have different types of blocking lots of complicated specific dialogue but also the the great thing about both of these scripts is the roma didn't really have a script and itumama had tambien had a loose script but the actors were allowed to improvise and play with the dialogue themselves but roma he went into it literally with no script just a bunch of ideas and that whole film is based off his memory because he the character paco one of the sons in the family represents him and he was that middle class family with the maid where and whereas itumama, itumama tambien is really just about living that life of the upper-class, middle-class life in Mexico. I'm very curious what his next film will look like because he's always used the long takes, handheld camera work, uh, except for Gravity, obviously. Uh, but There's some great long takes in that. No, but not handheld. Okay. But yeah, but very long takes. But he always used handheld because it brings that docu-style uh, gritty realism to it because, um, you know, so many documentaries are shot handheld or just like footage. So it brings the audience closer, and the longer the shot is, the more um, – the audience is inserted into the scene. So using combining long takes with handheld camera work really transports an audience into the moment more than any other style of filmmaking. Whereas Roma, he uses the, the same long takes, but he doesn't move the camera that much. If he use, if he moves the camera, it's just a, a pan or a tilt here or there. Track. Uh, the tracking was some of the best tracking shots we've seen in a long time. Like uh, very much PTA has always done long tracking shots like that. Um, but like otherwise, the camera's not moving. It's very static. Not there's no shaky cam. There's no handheld camera work in Roma, and it's more like it, I think the difference could be that with Itumama and those other films, like Children and Men, he's transporting you into the scene, so you're like there with the characters, like you're there with them, and like roaming with Clive Owen through these very scenes in Children and Men, he puts you into. Uh, Clive Owen's shoes. So you're you're like right there in the in the war zone with him, or you're in a, a scene in Itumama. You're in one of the apartments with these characters. Whereas with Roma, it's more like keeping the camera static, especially with the the cinematography where he often puts the camera in the middle of whatever room it is, and then he just rotates the camera, he just spins it, and we're just like kind of observing everything that's going on. And the camera just pans wherever Cleo or another character goes, and it never really moves forward. 
at all. It's always just moving. If it does move, it's tracking to the side. Um, and all of his mo other movies, the camera's always moving forward, except for Gravity following the ca other characters. And so I think that in his past, he was really um, obsessed with putting the audience into the moments with the characters. And then with Roma, I think he took the perspective of, I want the audience to be a spectator in what's happening and to just be, be static and then watch these characters and watch these moments and these memories and just take in the the entire scene. Yeah, and see the entire set. Every detail is there on purpose. You know, we built all these sets and rooms and in, in the houses from my memory. I want everyone to take it in. That's a great point because it's his probably most controlled film cinematography-wise versus Gravity where, you know, that's very controlled in terms of the movements that the camera is doing. But, you know, Children of Men, Itumama Tambien, Lots of handheld puts you in the feeling. So that's a great point that you made right there. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm here for. So you want you want to dive into uh, Itumama Tambien? Let's do it. All right, so this came out in 2001, co-written by Alfonso and his brother, Carlos Cuaron. And Itumama Tambien directly translates, if you don't know, if you never took Spanish, and your mama too. The phrase itself is not offensive, but if you put something offensive before it or you answer an offense with it, then it's like it's kind of like how we say, yeah, and your mother and like uh -huh. also say hi to your mother for me, something uh -huh. like that. It's, it's similar to that. Or like motherfucker. No, no, not technically motherfucker, but uh -huh. like, yeah, and your mother. Like, I got gotcha. you. You know what I mean? Like that makes sense. But Itumama Tambien, the synopsis is in Mexico, two teenage boys and an, an attractive older woman embark on a road trip and learn a thing or two about life, friendship, sex and each other and i think this is a film that demands repeat viewings like all of alfonso's films it's so damn well made the the movie's so well made that the producers of harry potter were like we need to get this guy alfonso Cuaron to make our next next harry potter movie and that was the next movie he did was prisoner of azkaban yeah david Heyman, you gotta give him credit uh he's he's been the he um produced all the harry potter films david Heyman. And he actually just did uh, Tarantino's last film, Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He was the only producer in Hollywood who would give Tarantino $100 million on that script. That's crazy to think of. Yeah. Well, people would still like it's a risk to invest that much money. Because his movies don't have a huge box they office. Make, they make money, but not huge guaranteed money. And so David Heyman, he was he got the rights from – and he worked with Warner Brothers making the Harry Potter movies. He And uh, someone like him, they're in charge of hiring directors and writers. And – he saw he was a fan of Itumama Tambien. I think that he he saw so much potential in Alfonso Cuarón's filmmaking and storytelling that he's like, if we want to really shake things up with Harry Potter, we need to hire this guy because he can make things. So he can just completely change the the language and visual dynamics of our franchise with a budget because he did such a great job on these little minimalist uh, films with very small budgets. Like, what would what if what would happen if we gave him 150 million dollars and he just flew and soared and made probably the best Harry Potter film? And it's a testament to how talented he is as a filmmaker. Yeah, and, and Itumama Tambien, it's a coming of age drama. It's a road drama for both these films, Itumama and Roma. People, I think I see people and people to ask us like, what are these movies even about? Like, I watched it. I didn't get it, and I think you got to watch it again if you didn't get it the first time because these these movies, I think it's pretty obvious what they're about. It's, they're, they're stories about life. You know, they both don't have exact plots. The plot of E2 Mama Tambien is these raunchy, rebellious teenagers are trying to take this older woman to the beach. Like, that's the that's plot it. of the movie. Yeah. And then in Roma, there is no plot. It's just a, a year in the life of this, this woman who's a maid for this middle-class family. But... 
it's about life. You know, life doesn't stories don't always have to have a, a direct plot structure, especially when you're. What's the plot of Taxi Driver? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like of a, of a film. Like we don't have to have a bad guy. We don't have to have uh, uh, goals for the protagonist. Even though you know, taking the girl to the beach sec- technically is a goal for Julio and Tenoch. But these films, they're about life. They're about growth. They're about the socio-political economic divide in the world in terms of classism, racism uh, in Mexico, but which are prevalent everywhere in every co- country in the world. But I think there's so much more when you look beneath the surface of both these films that you get to watch it again, you'll, you might get it at that time. What I think Alfonso does so well as a filmmaker and storyteller is he, he has so much respect just for the ordinary person, just for the average human being and for human beings in general where his films – Except for Harry Potter and Children of Men, because those are two amazing properties. I mean, you can't pass up directing Children of Men, such a great story, but also still fits into this mold of he just wants to tell tell stories about people. It doesn't have to have a supervillain that uh, a hero has to take over or, you know, save the world or these giant stakes. You know, everyone has their own stakes in life. Everyone has their own conflicts. And it's not so cut and dry. You know, it's not always good versus evil. You know, sometimes, you know, the villain in your life is you only have two months left to live. And what are you going to do with that remaining time? As in Luisa and in Tu Mama Tambien. And also in like uh, Julio and Tenoch, like uh, they're kids who are turning into men. And this is the most impactful time of their lives of making that transition. And that's its own story. And, you know, what makes his movie so great is just like an average person can just relate to them. Because we've all been through such similar circumstances, we can relate to these characters, these people. You can't relate to someone who has superpowers, really, and you can't relate to like uh, the the main villain in a movie being a superpower being, as opposed to you know something like that is just like real life stakes, like being poor and impoverished in a society that forgot you, like in Roma. And so I think that Alfonso, what makes him so special is he just makes stories and films about people. And I love how he's not afraid to let his actors create characters are on their own and implement their own improvisation and dialogue that happens in both these films it brings the authenticity and how you said that you know he's fascinated with people and everyone has their own story every person has their own individual personality which come full colors in all of alfonso Cuarón's films obviously except except for like harry potter because yeah. that's a property like a huge <laughs> franchise and characters already made but all these characters are so unique and and interesting because the actors got to create their characters so much too. And this is, I think, uh, Itomama is, uh, it's it could be, it's definitely up there with one of the greatest coming of age films ever made. And we get, we've always gotten a lot of coming of age films in America, especially in the two thousands. That was a very popular genre, like the indie coming of age movies, it's huge like, in the nineties yeah, too, yeah, in, as in well. 80s. But I felt like what was always missing was just that rated R aspect. We only f- saw a few times, like Superbad did a great job with the comedic side of, you know, being a teenager. But Itumama captured the idea of sex so well. And like when you're a young kid, obsessed with sex and all you can think about is sex. and But you really don't know anything about sex or actual intimacy. And these these kids are just, these two guys are just a couple of boneheads. And they're just like <laughs> horny idiots who don't know anything. They think they know everything. But then once they encounter a, 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 an older woman who has lived life and has had uh, very deep, intimate relationships with other people over the course of like the last 15 years, 
Then when they encounter her, they know nothing. Then they realize that pretty quickly. Están Chalarastras. They are Charolastras, which is <laughs> like their identity. You know, they have their manifesto where Charolastras, they do whatever they want. It, there's no greater honor than being a Charolastra. Uh, pop eats poetry, get high at least once a day. Uh, <laughs> whacking off rules. <laughs> In this movie, it's, it's vulgar. Yeah. It's raunchy. Some of the jokes have not aged well. You know, it's not a very PC-friendly film. But, you know, this is how kids talk. You know, this is teenagers. These are teenage boys. Hormones going crazy. And they're, they're vulgar. You yeah. know, they're raunchy. And that's what's so funny about it. And the whole aspect of the freedom of adolescence, you know, that's why I love the transformation that happens between Julio and Tenoch by the end of the film. You know, the first half, first two acts of the movie, they are just energetic. All they care about is just, like, getting high and, like, finding a good time and getting hanging laid. out. They yeah. don't want to go to college. Tenoch doesn't want to have to study economics like his father. And they're trying to sleep with this older woman who, like, for some reason called them on the phone to accept the invitation to go to this beach that they made up because it's all BS. <laughs> but then at the end of the film, you know, the last scene is so so emotional and impactful because they've changed so much you know they've lost the freedom of adolescence they're turning into adults in in the western world that means like going to college getting a job and Tinoch has to go study economics and then we even see this social divide between them where they'll never speak again yeah it's it's a great transformation for both characters just the complete difference in their behaviors and how they talk uh, at the end of the film in that in that cafe and i love how Quaron paints the picture of both um both their homes and how uh Tenoch is uh spoiled he has a, a huge home he has a maid who actually was played by Alfonso Caron's real maid when he was a, when he was a boy Lebo who Cleo is based yeah, on Cleo is based on you know he he's like he won't even answer his own phone like his maid brings him a sandwich while the phone's ringing and then she picks up the phone which is right next to him while he's playing video games and then then gives it to him like he lives a life of spoiled luxury and it's just a couple of shots of his home and that's all you need and same thing with julio's home uh alfonso gets a quick shot when he when when uh, tenoch calls him up about uh luisa actually wanted to go on the trip it's a funny scene because like he gave his car away they weren't planning on going they completely forgot about it and now they're trying to like make a quick plan and find a car but uh julio's apartment is just it looks like a lot of people live there it looks like it's a small maybe two-bedroom apartment uh definitely lower income just from seeing a contrast of both these homes tells so much about the characters yeah and tonosh might be one of the most privileged teenagers in mexico you could say oh again, definitely he's so yeah. wealthy his father has a very good job like an important man in terms of what he does for a living his father's friends with the president yeah like yeah. The, at their family wedding the president of mexico is a guest like the guest of honor at a family wedding which is absurd so he you you know Tenoch is on a different level like he's the upper class whereas Julio might be middle class little maybe a little lower than middle class because he, he's got this big family they have like one car that they all share him and his sister share and um I just want to say the chemistry between Gael and Diego are is off the charts and Gael Garcia Bernal and Diego Luna they've actually been real best friends since like infancy their their mothers work together um in a costume design department and they they're literally best friends. They used to act together when they were no little way. kids, and they've actually even been in another movie together. They were in Rudo e Carsi, which was a soccer drama, a football drama, directed by uh, Carlos Cuarón. So they're real life best buds, and I think that's why their chemistry is just off the charts. So good in this movie because Julio and Tenoch are like very similar. If you took away their economic and social background in the class divide and the classism that's 
re- relevant in their lives, which they don't understand yet, but they start to understand when they go at the end of the film when they're going into manhood. But also that that becomes an an affecting part of the relationship uh, when conflicts arise during the trip, and they when they when when Tenoch sleeps with um, Luisa first, it makes Julio very jealous and angry, and then they both reveal that they slept with each other's girlfriends, which causes a huge divide. But it's not just that. But then you start hearing the classism, and they start throwing their classism at each other. Then you see like it can really pull people to people apart and make them feel like Julio is on one team and Tenoch is on another team just because of how they grew up and where in the hierarchy of social class they are. Yeah, and we've all had like we've had rich friends, and you go yeah. over to your rich friend's house, and you're like, my God, like you live <laughs> like this, dude. What the. <laughs> my goodness you know we grew up with a family of eight it was absurd and uh, but then when you go to see we've all had rich friends you know and it's okay if, like you didn't choose how you were born it's not it's nothing wrong with being born wealthy you know it's just your family you know either you know is what it is but um the different like the jokes between class are just are funny at first between them and lighthearted. but then you're right once they start bickering and fighting and start to end their friendship and then it becomes a more personal and that's when uh Tenoch starts to like make really like mean jokes about him being lower class compared to him. Yeah, exactly. So that you can tell that's always just been deep down, probably something that Julio's always just been like in the back of his head, like Tenoch is so lucky. He grew up, he has such an amazing privileged life and I have nothing. So you can tell that's something that's always been unsaid between them. Yeah, and Luisa's probably somewhere around Julio's range in terms of class. Uh, she's married to Tenoch's Tenoch's first cousin, who was also at the wedding. This is where they meet Luisa, played by Maribel Verdu again, who if you might recognize from Pan's Labyrinth. She's in that as well. And Luisa is a very selfless person. She's a dental assistant. She, you know, she lost her parents when she was young. I think she was like 10 years old, and she grew up taking care of her aunt. And then she married Hanno when she was t- just 20 years old. So she hasn't really had much of a life to enjoy in terms of her adolescence freedom. She never really had that like Julio and Tenoch did. And I think that's one of the reasons why she was enticed into accepting their invitation to go to this made-up beach, what was it called, Heaven's Mouth or Heaven's, something? Yeah, Heaven's Mouth. And um, yeah. and then she calls after she finds out that Hano, when Hano confesses infidelity to her over the phone, then he accept, she accepts the invitation. But I think she was already enticed because of how fun they seem to be. Well, I think that she was in the main reasons was because of her diagnosis of only having a few months left to live, her husband cheating on her. Because I'm sure that if she didn't find out about, well, she she knew, but I think if she when she found out more infidelities and then it got to the point where it's like I can't like she probably would have spent the rest of her last remaining days with her husband if it wasn't for that phone call he gave her because she already knew, yeah, yeah. But she, I think that him calling her. That was definitely the catalyst combined with the the um, diagnosis from the doctor to, to just get away and, you, and to be like, you know what? This is my life. I don't owe anyone else. And I especially don't owe my husband anything. I'm going to spend it the last remaining days I have, which are very short, doing whatever I want. And then the opportunity of the boys, I think she was like, why don't I just go screw it? Why don't I just go with those kids and go to that beach and just – to take the rest of my life just doing whatever I want. 
and Louisa throughout the film of of her journey with the boys, you know, she's she seems kind of just like she never had this reckless stage in her life, this rebellious nature, and that's why she's up for anything. It seems like, however, the boys do like catch her crying a few times, and we get to see her crying secretly a few times. And it's not until the end of the film that you realize it probably wasn't the infidelity from her husband because we knew she already knew about that, but it's because she had thirty days left to live and she was dying of cancer. I think that's why she was crying by herself. But I think. Julio and Tenoch thought it was because of the infidelity. Yeah, it's it's a complicated situation to put a person in, and then you can understand every all of her motivations from that moment on. And I think she saw the boys as an opportunity for her to just uh, live out the rest of her days enjoying her life, finally. And this film, it's so well well photographed, and this is one of the early collaborations between Alfonso and Emmanuel Lubeski, and they actually went to film school together. And, you know, Emmanuel Lubeski is... You could make the argument he's the best cinematographer of all time for films like Thin, um, the Tree of Life and uh, the what's the, the Revenant, Revenant, things like that. Especially um, all of Quar- most of Quaron's movies. And what I love about Emmanuel is he likes to use so much natural light. He likes to use so much minimalism, and he, he likes to use practical light. So, like, if he's going to use actual lighting, he'll use it to like fill in maybe a little darkness or you know, to fix a scene, but ultimately he's going to rely on what's naturally there, whether, whether it be light from the windows or just already light from outside. And, you know, I think he's a master at framing and, you know, these, these shots, especially the long takes, they don't look like they're might be, they might to, to the untrained eye, they might seem like loose and in like improvised, not really planned out, but oh, like they just pop yeah. the camera on, but they are pl- extremely well planned and choreographed and planned and just like to the T Every actor and the cameraman knows every single spot they're hitting at the exact same time. So this is all perfectly laid out. And that's how you can do a long take effectively by planning it out. So everything is by design, even though he makes it look like it's very natural. Yeah, and he said that he used 90% natural light when filming this movie. Only some scenes have additional lighting. And really, that's probably just the nighttime scenes like inside the hotel rooms and and outside of that little restaurant at the end of the film, stuff like that, because a lot of this film takes place just in the car or outdoors in daylight. And it looks really beautiful. I would say, yeah, that that little restaurant on the beach, the green fluorescence, I I guarantee he added. Those probably weren't there already. But other than that, like that's all you really see for practical lighting used in that entire sequence. And I think one of the greatest strengths of this film is the voiceover narration. And, you know, if you use it the wrong way, it isn't always a great tool. But in a film like this, it was it elevates the story. And so the narrator is usually explaining what the characters are thinking, things they're keeping from each other, while shedding light on the backdrop of poverty and classism all around them in Mexico, which they may not notice because they've been around it their whole lives. And the voiceover also offers complexity to their emotions. Like one of the great examples is when they're driving into Nosh's looking out the window and he sees the village of the Pueblo where his nanny grew up. And, you know, in that in that voiceover monologue, the narrator is telling us how Tanosh never told anyone, but he called his nanny mommy, mama, until she was he was four years old. So his nanny technically was like more of a mother than his own mother probably was to him. You could tell it's definitely something he drew from real life. For real, yeah, because he, he based that on and yeah. then Roma off, off all of that in his memory. And then the narration is always 
accompanied by silence. You know, they they bring the volume down. There's there's no music. There's no sound effects. The only thing you hear really is the narrator talking, and it's almost like it reminds me of Goodfellas when Scorsese he does a freeze frame, and then all you hear and see is the freeze frame with just hearing the narration of Henry Hill. Usually, it also with this with this movie in particular. It feels different from narration in most other movies, even different from Goodfellas, because it feels like it's a novel, and it feels like you're listening to an audiobook where uh, the uh, prose is describing like the interior mo- um, feelings of a character or something from the past. It definitely feels like it's it's it would be written in the page of a book if you're reading a book called Itu Mama Tambien. Yeah, you know I can what I mean? see that for sure. That's what I, I really take away from narration in this, and I think it's really brilliant. And the narration usually always talks about a lot of times the classism, the divide, the socioeconomic situation of Mexico. You know, this film and the Roma are definitely heavy on, you know, racism and classism and privilege in Mexico, whether it be comparing the indigenous Mexicans to the descendants of the Spanish conquistadors, the more light-skinned Mexicans, which is obvious here in this film and in Roma, where, you know, Cleo and Roma. Cleo is a indigenous Mexican. You know, she even speaks uh, mixed tech. tech. And then she's taking care of this very light skin, middle class family. And then same thing in Itumama Tambien, where it's the reverse, where Julio, Luisa, and Tenoch, they are very light skinned Mexicans, obviously, probably descended from the Spanish conquistadors in the upper class for throughout centuries. And then Around them are the indigenous Mexicans either either working in the hotels, cooking their food, serving them, or just in these very poor villages and pueblos that they're driving through to get to this, this mysterious beach. Yeah, like Chewy the fisherman and his family, and then also that older woman who gives Luisa that little um, teddy bear teddy bear with her name on it. Like Those are indigenous, Luisita. the indigenous population as well, and you, I think that it's so great that you know Alfonso, Alfonso always pays so much respect and wants it to be known how important in the indigenous population is to Mexico. I think it's really genius. Yeah, and Cleo, uh, played by, in Roma, played by uh, Yalitza Aparicio, she was the first indigenous actress to be nominated for Best Act- Actress at the Oscars. She's also become an activist in terms of getting uh, more representation for the indigenous population in uh, Mexican cinema. Yeah, and that's why, again, why we love both these films and they go so well together because it's different perspectives of the same world and same story. Roma is the indigenous uh, Mexicans' perspective versus this is Itumama Tambien is the middle class, upper class perspective. Yeah, exactly. And each one of these characters goes through a major transformation. Uh, for Lu- for Luisa, it's obviously short lived, but for the boys, uh, they like we said earlier, they become men by the end of the film, and also they discover so much about themselves on this trip. This trip was supposed to be just like a a fun get like weekend getaway, try and get laid with this older lady and get get messed up, but it ended up becoming a life changing um, sequence of events for them, um, and also just a, a negative, I think. Uh, outcome for both of them in terms of them not ex- like realizing who they really are deep down and not um, liking themselves for it and not like um, embracing themselves because uh, by the end of the film by the climax the, the, they have a threesome with Luisa and it's not just like uh, they both have sex with her like they have sex with each other as well um, and they're intimate with each other and you can tell the next morning 
they're both kind of like disgusted of themselves and they they feel ashamed like they want to leave right away they don't want to speak to each other yeah tanosh vomits yeah. outside yeah and this says this is the start of a huge falling out between them where the next time they see each other is when they act randomly bump into each other and then uh just get grab a coffee to catch up and then you know and then they'll never see each other again whereas they they were best friends for a very long time and i think ultimately like ultimately luisa like nailed the head on nailed the pin on the head where she was like you two are just in love with each other you don't want to admit it yourselves you two just want to f each other and you know deep down that's really true like they the boys had such a strong connection and bond but they always rejected intimacy and then when they were intimate with each other by the end of the film they rejected that within themselves because they themselves felt ashamed of it and just wanted to run away from it rather than keep embracing it and see what happens yeah it reminds me of call me by your name except in this film they don't want to admit their feelings for each other, and then they end up taking it to their graves after they have that sexual experience with each other. And that's one of the reasons why they never speak again. It's told, told to us at the end of the film, they'll never speak to each other again. I think that's one of the main reasons. And then also, I think the classism division between them is also another reason why they'll never speak again. Because, again, when you're free and adolescent, you you have different friends from all different backgrounds. But when you start to get older, most people just converse and, and have relationships with people in their same class. Yeah, exactly. And also, it shows like they kind of broke every one of their rules in their manifesto. And they never ended up living by their manifesto truly deep down. But this movie, it's still very lighthearted and fun. You know, both these characters, Julio and Tanoche, they think they're like sexual experts because they have these girlfriends that they're so good in bed with. But then when Luisa sleeps with both of them, she's like, you both, like, who cares who slept with who when you both last 10 seconds each? Like, what does it matter? <laughs> it's so funny, the sex scenes. Because great. The, the fighting between them starts when, like you said earlier, when Luisa has sex with Tanoche first. But Julio gets jealous, but he doesn't understand. And Luisa tells him, like, I would have done the same thing if it was you who walked into my home hotel room looking for a towel that or shampoo that time yeah it didn't matter i was gonna sleep with both of you at different points yeah it, it sparked so much animosity between them but then they didn't understand because they're so emotionally immature she's like she's like it's not about emotion with me or it's just i just wanted to get laid you know i just wanted to have someone have sex with me because i you know I, she's going through so much and she i think she just wants a moment of levity to just like forget about everything forget that she's gonna die soon and to just, you know, feel good for a few moments. But actually, it ended up just being like a couple of seconds, unfortunately. Yeah, really. But remember, Luisa never had this in her entire life. When her parents died when she was young, then she moves in with her aunt and ends up taking care of her aunt her entire teenage years. And then marries Hano and when she's 20. So she never had this rebellious freedom as an adolescent before. And that's what she's doing in this period with the boys. And this is there's some great portrayal of... of of sex in this movie like this movie starts with a sex scene that it's just so funny and he's just like realistic <laughs> that movie starts and then you just see uh what diego luna's ass like immediately <laughs> diego luna <laughs> it's so funny and he, he manages to like weave in great comedy and like uh you know couples when they're intimate how they're talking and joking around it's very cute and very realistic and it's very funny especially the sec the scene with gail and his girlfriend in in the opening of the film when she's trying to get it in one last time before she has to go to go to way to college <laughs> with Julio. she's like hurry up hurry up can't find my passport <laughs> so it's, funny it's a very funny opening 30 minutes this movie's laugh out loud it's hysterical oh yeah and you know when the boys fight when julio and tanosh fight they start talking about and confessing how they both have been sleeping with each other's girlfriends and then you know you think they're gonna make up and they have that final in the third act when they have that big night the big binger with with Luisa, which leads to their threesome, and they're confessing everything to each other while getting drunk off mezcal, and they're talking about how like 
uh, they, they've cheated with each other, and then Julio tells Tenoche, también. You slept with my mother? Yeah, yeah. So and they're just laughing about it's it. It's hysterical. Yeah. They, they, it seems like they're going to make up, but then they have the, the sexual experience with each other, and then they're ashamed of themselves because they're afraid to accept what they want. And then they never speak to each other really ever again. Yeah, it's it's as though, you know, Luisa helps them realize them true selves and they reject themselves when they discover it because they don't want they don't want to embrace it. And they they run away from who they truly are, which is actually very sad. And it's a very tragic movie The for, for all three characters. It's a tragedy. And, you know, that final scene where they're talking in, in the cafe, they both just seem so depressed and like beaten by life. Yeah. And it's because they they let fear win. And fear take them over, and they aren't themselves anymore. That's why they're they're so different. Yeah, and like the color and vitality is gone. They're just yeah. in like muted tones. The cafe's muted, whereas before they were always just so um, like jovial. Yeah, yeah, just having a good time and just like expressing themselves constantly. Love being around each other. Yeah, and, but now it's all gone, and you know it's, it's it is a sad ending. It's a tragic it story. Tragic. It's very tragic, but it's a really beautiful film. And I think if you don't get it, I recommend watching it again and just looking beneath the surface of this film because there's a lot there especially not even just the classism and racism and, and privilege that we've been talking about with with mexico and just any western civilization but also the westernization of mexico and how it's changing how you brought up chewy and you know you said earlier the line where this this country full of people that left so many citizens behind specifically mostly the indigenous mexicans left them behind chewy's one of those people where you know he's a fisherman and a tour guide of all these beautiful beaches but then the film in with voiceover explains how within like a year or two he's going to lose all of his work because a big resort's going to move there and then all the, the resorts have the connections with the local governments and they'll get all the touring and fishing contracts and he'll lose his job that he has with his, supporting his family and he's going to take a job being a janitor and probably be a janitor for the rest of his life. Yeah, and it's a, a brilliant way to portray it by showing him currently and enjoying his life and then uh, and then the audience knows it's like this tragic thing never ability the, the character doesn't know what's going to happen to him but the audience does and it's really sad really great way to, to portray it and that's why i think if you watch this again you know everything that's going to happen specifically with louisa and you look at her motivations and her performance completely differently yeah i i love this movie i think if you love coming of age films this has to be your next one to watch it's so so fantastic and like louisa says life is like the surf Give yourself away like the sea. Uh-huh. Nice. Let's head on into our intermission. How's that sound? Sounds wonderful. All right, let's begin with our movie quote competition. This one's for me. Let's hear it. Being vegan just makes you better than most people. <laughs> chicken chicken isn't vegan. <laughs> Gelato isn't vegan. Milk and eggs, bitch. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> I love that movie. Okay, here's here's a quote from our friend Tevin. You know not what will become of you, so I offer you this. The most blessed reprieve, the most dreadful misery. You shall suffer the indignity of serving me, the wayward son you so revile. But now you know you will be watched over by an altogether different king. Oh, I know this. Um, an altogether different king. What is this? I know this. Hold on. Say it one more time. That's uh, a lot. Hold on. <laughs> Just say the last two lines. One sec. I got to pull it up. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Ah, hold on. I almost got it. He almost got it. 
Oh, it's the king. The king. Timmy Chalamet. Let's go. That's right Good after one. his father dies uh-huh. in his deathbed, yeah. and then he's all they all start to kneel in front of him. Such a good movie. Great quote, Tevin. Yeah, Tevin killed it. Love that movie. So underrated. Here's my quote. More like taking a shower with two guys named Jamal and Jesus, if you, if you know what I mean. And here's the bad news. That thing you're sucking on, it's no <laughs> pina colada. <laughs> uh, it sounds so familiar, but... Uh, the first character talks about going on like a private island getaway vacation. And then, then this character says... It's more like you're going to be taking a shower with two guys named Jamal and Jesus, if you know what I mean. And that thing you're sucking on, it's not a pina colada. <laughs> I, can't, I don't know. Inside Man. Oh, Denzel man, Washington. Denzel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. All right. He's great in that. Dude, it's so funny. Such an underrated movie, too, on Inside Man. It's one of my favorite heist movies. All right. Guess movie release year. Beautiful. 2001. 2010. You were oh. way off. I was way off. <laughs> Javier. Javier. It's a really, really good movie. I always forget that he did No Country before that. Okay. Guess this movie release here. Crimson Tide. 19. Ooh, tough one. 91? 95. 95. 95. Wow. Movie pop quiz time. What director convinced Alfonso Cuaron to direct... Prisoner of Azkaban. Easy. Yeah, that is easy. Guillermo del Toro. There you go. Who actually was attached originally, but couldn't make it. Imagine if he'd made that. That would be cool. He was in, uh, I believe, in production of Hellboy already. Yeah. Because that was like around 2005, right? 2004, 2005. Okay, here's my quiz. Who directed Denzel in Flight? Who did direct Flight? Um, Oh, man. Um... Who directed Flight? Think of just think about how awesome the plane crash sequence was. No, I know who could pull that off. I mean, a lot of directors, like I mean, Spielberg could pull that off. He, like Ridley, no, Ridley didn't make that. No, who the heck made it? Zemeckis. Oh, Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. Man, he also did Sully. <laughs> yeah, he's done a lot of really <laughs> and Castaway. He's great at making plane crashes. That's why I gave you the hint. Yeah. Okay, so many plane crashes. All right, um, who do we have for hater unsubscribe? What do we got going on for this episode? Any, we any, got a hater. Any good ones? Oh yeah, we got a hater. Let's see. I made a clip about um, in Spider Man Two at the end. Uh, there's a deleted scene. Wait, no, there's not a deleted. It's just uh, MJ's wedding, and before she runs away, while everyone's waiting for her, uh, there's a shot of Harry Osborn, James Franco, and he's wearing a dark green bow tie. It's a really cool fun fact, you know, foreshadowing for him. He's now taking the serum by now. Oh, yeah, I remember I pointed it yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I posted the clip, and then I wrote, this is genius for the comment. And then San2230 wrote, uh, the bar is actually quite low for you guys, huh? And I was just like, who hurt you, man? <laughs> I guarantee you he never noticed that. Guarantee. Yeah. There's Guaranteed. no way. I never noticed Because I remember I pointed it out to you last time we watched Spider-Man 2. I'm like, hey, that's a green bow tie. You're like, oh, my God. I never, I never noticed, noticed it. And I've seen the movie 20 times. Yeah. He said we're, we have we, – so, he said he likes our podcast. Maybe some rose-tinted glasses, which means that, like, 
where we look through everything through like a colored nice lens like oh everything's beautiful um, so, have you been listening to this episode sir clearly I not i recommend it i think he just is listening to our tiktoks only yeah anyways moving on our godfather shout out of today is anthony limperes a huge fan of our show Great supporter. He upped his ante to the Godfather tier. Tony, on the day of our, Tony! Daughter, of our daughter's wedding, we made you an offer you couldn't refuse. a Godfather to your patron. You can act like a man. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, pal. <laughs> All right, we have a great five-star review for our supporter of this episode from Tan the Man 1237 Nice. Um, Subscribe. <laughs> I discovered you guys on TikTok and have been enjoying listening to, since then. Good move posting videos over there. Your content is engaging, informative, and entertaining. Just the kind of thing I am looking for. So our bar's not set too low for you. I guess you. not. Thanks, Tan. Thanks, thanks, bud. Appreciate it, pal. Tan the man. Uh, here's to many more raids. Raiders of Lost podcast. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> many Tan. more raids. I like that. Thanks, Tanner. We really appreciate We're it. We're raiding the movies. Yeah, I guess he <laughs> likes our TikTok videos. <laughs> <laughs> it's like last week the hater was, I just don't find this account interesting anymore. Uh, no one's forcing you to watch. No one's making you watch these videos. <laughs> so sorry. Jesus Louise, We're bro. A bur- We're a burden on his life. On this day in film history, today is January 27th in 1970. The movie rating system modifies M rating to PG. That's when PG was created. In 1995, before Sunrise was released, in 2012, The Grey was released, and happy birthday to Bridget Fonda and Roseman Pike. You know what movie made them make a PG-13? Um, Jaws? No. Um, I don't know. Raiders of the Lost, I mean, uh, Temple of Dune. Uh, oh yeah, that movie's... That was a PG when it came out. That was PG. PG. That's right. There's so there were so many reports of um, parents making complaints about their kids being like horrified watching I it. Might t- if I yeah. took my kid to see that, and he yeah, was, like, it's horrible. Five, it's terrible. There's some horribly yeah. graphic stuff in that movie. I love it, but it's that was, like that was PG. So that after little that kids should not be seeing that yeah. movie. After that movie, they the MPAA instituted an MP uh, a PG thirteen rating. Kids can see Raiders, but yeah. like Temple of Doom, holy crap, yeah, that's messed up. It's a heavy movie. Yeah. All right, my streaming recommendation is The Taking of Pelham 123, the nice. remake. This is on Amazon Prime. It's just a really good time. Travolta Denzel. It's, it's great. Yeah. It's very entertaining. It's not the greatest movie ever made, but it's like perfect for like, what should I watch tonight? I'm kind of bored. It's like Tony I, Scott. Dude, it's it's great. Yeah, it's, it's a to- good time. Tony Scott, bro. Really great like ticking clock, like yeah. action adventure. With the Tony Scott movie, most of the time, just like turn your brain off and it's just going to be Top a Gun, fun bro. ride. Top Gun. Top Gun, bro. Let's go. True <laughs> romance, bro. <laughs> my streaming recommendation is Predator. They just added it <laughs> on Amazon Prime. Nice. <laughs> Dylan. <laughs> Got you pushing too many pencils, huh? (laughs) Now it's finally 2022, so now is the time to finally get your act together and get yourself groomed up for the new year, new use. So I recommend the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer from Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your entire order today from them. And finally, we can talk about the stuff that we've been waiting to talk about, their new products. So they also just launched their Ultra Premium Collection, the Ultimate Wet Goods Bundle, which includes deodorant, yes, actual deodorant from Manscaped for your armpits, body wash, two-in-one shampoo and conditioner, hydrating body spray lotion, which is pretty legit. And the package will also come with a free set of Manscaped lip balm. That's a $12 value you get for Frizzle, (laughs) $3.99. So definitely make sure to go to manscaped.com, join the over 2 million men worldwide, get their packages, get their lawnmower, all this bundle stuff. We've been using pretty much everything 
in the shower from Manscaped for about like six months now. It's all top-notch stuff. Smells amazing. Use our coupon code at checkout, Raiders of the Lost, and you'll get 20% off and free shipping. Thanks so much to Manscaped for being a friend of the show. If you love movie posters, there is no better place to get your posters than at movieposters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Head on over to their website, movieposters.com, and check out their gigantic selection of posters. They have pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their arsenal, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting, and whatever your poster needs are, they can handle it. If you're looking at our set on YouTube, you'll see that it is covered with these amazing posters. This is the highest quality you can get for a print job. I couldn't recommend them enough. Again, head on over to movieposters.com and use our special promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. Moving on into Roma, which came out in 2018. A year in the life of a middle-class family's maid in Mexico City in the early 1970s. In Roma, again, Netflix release, Alfonso Cuaron's last film. Astounding filmmaking. Attention to detail is off the charts. So detailed. Incredible production design. They built a ton of these great sets. Again, first foreign language film to win the Academy Award for Best Director. He filmed this digital, black and white, only using 65mm lenses. And like Anthony talked about earlier, the camera's always either moving side to side with a pan or tracking along along a track. And this doesn't have the typical Quaron handheld shots, and it's very controlled filmmaking. It's an interesting um, style, and I was surprised when I saw the first trailer because I was, I was expecting it to be film, but he, he, he used the highest quality digital camera you can use. It's so sharp and clear and, and just like crystal clear, and it, it allows so much uh, um, depth and so much range, and he chose that because he wanted to bring the old and new together. So when, it, when, he, when he brings the old together, it's black and white, like the films he grew up watching. And then bring the new into it with the state-of-the-art camera as opposed to an old film camera. And it brings this really unique quality of, you know, uh, other black and white films that have come out recently, you know, like The Lighthouse, Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, a few others, generally photographed on on black and white film. And you can see the grain and, and it has that quality to it, even 60 millimeter, a couple of them, like um, Noah Baumbach's. But the high quality resolution with the black and white the crisp imagery, it was something I had never seen before on screen. And it's so simple of an idea, and it just looks stunning. In the amount of detail in these shots, the set design, uh, the, the way the camera just allows us to feel like we're transported into these environments, the gigantic outdoor sets when the tracking shots of like Cleo moving through the city, just amazing, amazing uh, production and camera work. Use the Ari Alexa to film these and most was shot in Mexico City instead of using sound stages. This also gave the appearance of real airplanes, real cars in the background, stuff like that, because, you know, this is all from his memory. The story's based on Alfonso's memories of his youth and the abstract ideas of those memories. And he said 90% of the scenes are just things that he just tried to think back and remember. And, and as he was like building the story and building the sets, more memories came to him. And the really interesting thing about this movie 
again, there's really no script. The actors never got a script. He would tell them right before they filmed the scenes what they were supposed to do and say and what the scene was about, how to act and react in specific situations. This creates a ton of chaos and realism inside of his scenes. He was really the only person on the entire set to know the entire script and story, You guess, you, I guess you could say. But again, this is just a story. It's not a plot structured script it's just a film of a bunch of events and ideas and, and abstract events of of cleo based on libo liboria alfonso's nanny who gets the um paralibo at the end of the film credit and it's from her perspective and again alfonso wanted an indigenous woman to play cleo and cleo is played by yelitsa aparicio who also got the role because not only is she indigenous, but she also speaks Mixtec, which is an indigenous language in Mexico. So Cleo and Adela, the two maids of the family, speak Mixtec to each other in the film as a way to communicate privately outside of the family. And so when you watch this movie, there are two kinds of subtitles, just normal subtitles, and then there are subtitles and parentheticals. The parenthetical ones are Mixtec. And she actually got the role by accident. What happened was the, they were doing this big casting call for indigenous women to audition for this role and they and he was looking for non-actors because he wanted it to be authentic and so all, all sorts of women were auditioning and then her sister went to audition and then her sister was like come on tag along like I, I need a ride or something so her sister she went with her sister and she just auditioned just on a whim because she was there and then i think she made it to the next few casting calls and i think that alfonso saw something in her like this natural quality to her, this natural charisma, because Cleo, it's like she, you 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 love her so much, and just the way he captures the the way she looks, her the, the how she's interpreting everything, how she's reacting to things. Uh, she never, even though she goes through so many difficult times in her life, and especially in this film, and her life is it's a hard life, you know, she's a servant, but there's just like this lovable quality about her, this purity about her. And this morality within her, and you just can't help but continue watching her. And this, what like I think this makes this movie so beautiful, is it's just like like you said, it's a collection of memories. It feels like, and just it feels like such an authentic portrait of just a, a, a human being, something that's so rare to see in a movie nowadays, with so much of big budget and super villains and end of the world stakes. To see something like this with just the real human drama real personal stakes you know it's true to life and authenticity it's such a rarity now and i think that's what makes this movie so powerful and the furniture is real from alfonso's family in his past he got about 70 to 80 percent of his family's real furniture which was dispersed in different areas of mexico and brought it in for the filming and whatever they couldn't get he had the the departments uh, the production teams design and make furniture from his memory of like the bedrooms and stuff like that so a lot of the furniture in the film is from alfonso's past and there's such profound filmmaking i mean just from the opening shot it starts on the concrete tiles of the driveway and then he does the opening credit sequence like this it's a static camera that just holds on the on the tiles and then water gets poured onto the tiles and then the water creates a reflection of the sky above, which is framed out by the the building, the top floors. And it's just this little image that wasn't seen before, but now the reflection allows us to see it. And it's the sky, and then we see a plane flying overhead. And then Alfonso bookends the end of the film with the same image, but instead we're looking up at the sky instead of a reflection. And it's a great way of translating Cleo in her 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 
po- her place in the world. You know, she looks at the the plane in the sky. Could look at you could say is like freedom um, and elevation into a different social class or uh, a better life, but she can only see it on the ground. So she'll and it's basically a metaphor of her. She'll she's gonna stay here planted on the ground. She won't be able to rise up anywhere. And then it's con it's it's shown in the bookend at the end of the film, looking up at the sky, when Cleo is walking up the steps to go to the roof to start doing more maid work and servant work. It's again showing that she'll never fully be able to climb out of this social hierarchy. She's stuck here forever. And it's a tragic thing, but she's trying to make the best of it. Yeah, because any climbing that she does do, it's hidden from everything else. She might be climbing up because all the, the climbing up and down elevation is so relevant. It's it's also in Parasite like this too, where upper class and wealthy oh, yeah. live up, you know, upstairs, up hills. And then the lower class live low, live below hills. You know, the Christmas party is another great example where the the wealthy Christmas party is above the ground in this mansion up the stairs, whereas the lower class party is down several stairs, like 20 feet below, down a ton of stairs in this party where, you know, all the animals are and everything like that. So obviously this film is full of classism. And, you know, when I see that shot at the end of, of Cleo after her supposed vacation, Going up the stairs again, anytime she does elevate in life, it's hidden from everything else. And it's just to do more work. And then I think the significance of that opening shot, like you were talking about, it's, it's basically that reflection to me when I see it is like a door that she can never enter, she can never open. The significance of the airplanes, these are all real airplanes in the movie. This isn't CGI or anything. They they built this set right near an airport in Mexico City because that's what Alfonso Cuaron's childhood home was like. He saw airplanes in the sky constantly. And so that is also just a, it, it's a uh, symbol of, you know, it's like maybe she'll never be able to live in a world like that. She can never fly. She'll never go on an she'll airplane. She'll never go on an airplane probably unless she's going on vacation with them. So those are like a, a class that she can never succeed. She can never reach. You know, she can never reach that elevation. And the airplanes also add so much realism because movies do everything they can. Filmmakers do everything they can to eliminate planes or avoid planes, um, whether it be the sound. Um, they'll, they'll wait until a flame plane passes overhead or to get it out of the shot maybe if they can't avoid it they'll try and cgi it out even the tracks that the planes leave in exactly. the sky that you'll never see that in movies yeah, the chemtrails <laughs> calls <them>. <laughs> <laughs> all the conspiracy theories it's chemtrails Dude, the earth's pretty big it's you're not gonna just breathe that <laughs> it's in. not gonna come down here but um what it does is because you grow i mean if you live near a major city you see a lot of planes flying in the air i remember like being a kid and seeing planes every day like see them, uh, i see them every day today yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually yeah, yeah. We, we see them a lot and helicopters too in la but it adds so much realism and i think that what he understood was uh not using the handheld but using the long takes and also the sound design to add realism i think that he's he's um transitioning into another way of of translating realism and authenticity in his movies the sound design in this movie is, is some of the best i've ever seen because it's when you're it, when you're inside the home or in an apartment or whatever you're hearing like you know a dog barking outside or a car going by and you're not even seeing any of this stuff but you hear so many sounds that make it feel like oh you're in a neighborhood because usually you, uh 99 of the movies like you're in a, a interior location all you hear is what's inside the room but in this film you're constantly hearing things and that's something that like we're always like right now like we have to block out this room with curtains and and close the windows sound damping curtains cuz they're, they're thick cuz if you live in a city 
there are constantly sounds, whatever it be, a car or, or the tree or a wind or some random loud bang or anything. Like the sounds never end. It's not like it's we're surrounded by silence. And movies go to great pains to get, eliminate every noise they can. And if they can't, if a movie shoots a scene and there's a little bit of a, a wind or a draft making a little bit of a noise, they're going to aid the yard the dialogue over in post because they want to clean up the background noise to make it quiet so all you hear is the dialogue. But what reality is for us is like, if you go outside, you're going to hear so many things. And I think that Alfonso tackled the sound design of this film in such an authentic and naturalistic way. It really feels like you're you're in these moments with these characters. And that opening shot, it's genius because as it pans up, we see in still one take, it pans up when we see this beautiful home, this huge driveway, these big windows and this giant door of this obvious wealthy family, this middle-class family in Mexico. And again, middle-class in Mexico is lot wealthier than like middle class in Me- in America or something like that. And then it it pans left and pans to the other side of the driveway and we see where Cleo lives after she's, you know, cleaning up the floor and then she you, we see her home, her little apartment that she shares with Adela and it's just a complete disparity of upper class to lower class and they're right there right next to each other. And I like how you use the word servant because the word servant servant is only used once in this film. It's what Furman calls Cleo after she tries to confront him about her being pregnant with his baby and he denies it. And then he calls her a servant, whereas everyone else in the film calls her a maid. And the interesting thing about it is it seems like calling someone a maid it doesn't. It's a nicer way of calling a, them a servant because it's the same thing yeah. in, in this film. You know, you you can assume. We, we can assume Cleo and Adela are probably hardly getting any pay. We can assume that the majority of their pay that they get for working for this family is the, the room and board, the room and, and, food. And, board and, and food. food. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably mostly what they get with some money for expenses and stuff like that, like how they get to go to the movies and, whatever, and whatnot. So you can assume that she's working for next to nothing currency wise. All she has is a place to live. So she's essentially a servant and just people saying a maid, it, it, it makes it sound not as bad as as servitude, but it really isn't. Even the grandmother doesn't even know Cleo's middle name, Cleo's birthday. Yeah. Cleo, they don't know Cleo's family. No one knows anything really about her. It's that's such a great. Um, it's it's portrayed in such a beautiful way and subtle way in the film and in lots of scenes. And and get Cleo is a servant, like she's not a maid. She serves the family. 24-7, except she, she, it seems like she gets half a day off on weekends like to go to the movies and stuff. Seems like she gets like half the day off to go out with Adela. Yeah, because she's working morning to night when yeah. they go to bed, when they wake yeah. up. But look, there are a couple great moments of showing this disparity between the two classes. Um, for instance, when uh, the grandmother takes Cleo shopping to get the crib, uh, when she speaks to the saleswoman, the first thing she says is, uh, I'm looking to get a crib for my maid. She calls her her maid immediately. Like, There's no reason to call Cleo your maid she doesn't say, I'm here to get uh, a crib or I'm here to get a crib for a friend. Or, but she, she goes, say, we need a crib. Yeah, she says, I'm getting a crib for my maid. She's she's like making it, it known that I'm upper class and this person, she's only with me because she's my maid. And it's a very subtle thing uh, that I'm, she, she's not meaning to sound like disparaging, but the grandmother is uh, immediately saying, I'm better than her without actually saying that. And not even knowing she's doing it. You know what I mean? That's something that upper class people will do a lot. And also one of my favorite scenes is it's a really simple scene in the first act of the film when the family um, is watching a TV show together and they're all laughing and they, it looks like they had like dessert while they were watching the show because they're, they're holding plates and stuff. And then Cleo, she's enjoying the show with them as well. 
like laughing along and just like enjoying the program. But as she's watching it, what's she doing? She's picking up plates from people. She's gathering spoons. And um, even when she finally gets a second to like actually sit down and just watch the show for a second, then uh, Sophia asks her to get tea for the doctor. So what she gets, she, she's not has to go. She has to go and serve the doctor. And she has she to also, keep serving them. She's sitting on a cushion on the floor. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't even have a place on the couch. She never has a place to sit yeah. anywhere. Even at the end, in the third act, when the family's having ice cream at at the beach, she's standing while the entire family's sitting on the bench. It's a really beautiful way of showing uh, her isolation from the family because uh, a beautiful in an artistic way and nuanced. Because yeah. I think an average writer or director would be like. That would be in dialogue, like, "Oh, I'm, I'm above you. Like, you work for me." You would see all these, I like super cliched monologues, stuff like that. But Alfonso, what makes him such a great storyteller is he shows rather than telling you. He's not telling you with with dialogue. Oh, I'm upper class and you're lower class. He's showing through action. Like Cleo, she's in the family. She's part of the family. She is as much a mother to the kids as Sophia is. You know, she wakes up every day. She's the one who wakes the kids up. Gets them ready for school every day. And how does she wake up? She wakes up with a loud alarm, and then this family gets to be woken up by her gentle, soothing voice. She's she's like a loving mother the way she wakes every kid up. But still, even when she's enjoying watching a TV show with the family, she's not part of the family. She's still just an employee. I think it, by the end of the film, maybe she – you could say she's a part of the family after the father leaves them. You know, It's a really emotional third act at the beach, which we'll get to. But throughout the entire film, you're right. The kids, they don't understand her situation really. They, they think she's part of their family. They really do. They don't understand classism yet. They don't understand that she's a servant, not like a maid who just lives at the house. They don't understand that she's not part of the family because the kids always treat her so wonderfully with so much love. They tell her they love her all the time. They put their arms around around her like they're like she's part of their family like she's an aunt or something you know Sophie's always telling her how much she loves her so does Pepe and um you know yeah Paco yeah Paco too but like she's it's kind of like how Alfonso did with Tonosh in Itamama Tambien where the maid the servant of the family is just as much a mother to the children as the actual mother who gave birth to them even maybe more she spends more time with the kids, absolutely. You know, she's she's the first person they see when they wake up. She helps them get dressed. She makes their breakfast. She cleans their clothes. And then at the end of the night, she puts them to bed. She turns all the lights out. She does everything for them. And she, you can even see the imprint that she has on them because they know the words to her mi- mixtech songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. She'll she'll sing the mixtech songs and they'll sing along to them, even though they don't they don't speak the language because when she talks to Adela in mixtech, um, there's a Pepe goes, what are you saying? What are you saying? Not understanding what they're saying because they're not speaking Spanish, but they know the children's songs that she sings to them because she's made such a motherly impact on their lives that um, she is ingraining them with her own culture in a way. You know what I mean? And dogs are, are really prevalent in this film, and I think Alfonso used them on purpose. And they have a dog at the in the in at the house called Boris. And the interesting thing about Boris is we can obviously assume that Boris belongs to the family, but what does Boris never get to do? Never gets to go inside the house ever. Boris is always outside in the driveway. 
and he never even gets to go outside. And then another yeah. s- another uh, image of dogs that we see is when they go to like the German family's house for Christmas, and Cleo is in that room and she sees all the busts of all the different dogs everywhere, and and there's just like dozens of them of all of the dogs that have lived in that house. And I think Alfonso is trying to make the comparison that the upper class and middle class people look at their maids and their servants in the lower class similar to dogs, maybe even lower than dogs because I think when Cleo's looking at those busts for several moments, I think some people might see it's like, oh, she's looking, she's thinking of her own mortality. I think she's thinking like, this is like, I'm not even as honored as a dog to these families. Like, I'm not even going to, like, they're going to honor their dogs before they honor someone like me as part of their family. There's probably not even a photo of me anywhere in the house. Yeah, and, you know, they bark orders at her like they would a dog. You know what I mean? Get me this, get me that, you know, Cleo, blah, blah, blah. So she her relationship to the upper class is the same as a dog to its owner exactly. in a lot of ways. So I think that's why you might be affectionate with a dog, but also they're much way below you on the food chain. And the mother snaps at Cleo a few times in this film like a, like an owner would snap at a dog like aggressively, um, like when she yells at her to clean up the dog crap all over the driveway. And the husband is kind of like very dismissive to Cleo too. But there is also love there too. So it's a really complicated, complex relationship that the upper class people have to the lower class citizens like Cleo. Oh, yeah, there's a great – I'm sorry to interrupt, but – the Fine. scene when Cleo tells Sophia that she's pregnant, Sophia is so endearing and so like thoughtful and so concerned and she seems like like very motherly to Cleo and is like supporting her. But then the kids come back with and she's like, oh, let me read your letters to dad during Cleo's most difficult moment of Cleo's life. And then she speaks to the kids like it's no problem. There's this like this button, this switch that they turn off. Like they could turn on um, and be in full of love towards Cleo, but then they can turn it off, and it's like Cleo is kind of invisible. The adults, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Ex- yeah. The adults. The children. They don't. They get can. It. They can literally make in- Cleo invisible to them. But I think the beach trip. You know, after Cleo gives birth to the stillborn, stillborn daughter, which is such a tragic moment, and then she gets invited by. The mother and the family to go on their beach getaway. You know, it's the last trip with the Ford Galaxy because they're going to sell it secretly because their father left them. The husband's gone. And I think when I think when Cleo saves Paco and saves uh, Sophie from the ocean, I think that's really the the strongest moment for the the mother and the family to truly accept her as a member of their family because they, they tell her that they love her so much and Cleo confesses that she didn't want the baby. And, you know, they they tell her, we love you. We love you so, so much. And I think that moment, she really has become a member of their family in a way. I think so, too. And because Alfonso follows that up with um, a shot of inside the car on the ride home and Cleo is holding two of the kids like a mother and they're just sleeping on her like like her children. And she lost a child, but I think that she's realizing that she has she already has kids. She has four kids. These these three boys and this girl and she has been a mother for years now and i think that she's embracing that part of her duty where she's she she might have always looked at herself as a maid and a servant but maybe she's beginning to realize 
I am a, a kind of a mother as well, more than any of those. But still, it's so complex and yeah. complicated because then the final shot is her going to do their laundry from the vacation, going up those stairs to the roof to do the laundry, which in the first act of the film, Alfonso gets this brilliant shot of, of her upstairs doing laundry where Paco and Pepe come up and they have their argument and Pepe's there by himself being all sad and then they she's she lays down with Pepe and they pretend they're dead and she's like I kind of like being dead but then Alfonso shows all the rooftops in all the neighborhood in this entire neighborhood and all the maids and all the servants of all these middle class families are all doing laundry for the families they're serving on the roofs again because all of their work technically is basically hidden and the only time they can have any eleva- elevation is hidden socially from the hierarchy of the of the country exactly and he, there are so many shots of maids or servants in the backgrounds of many of these shots in this neighborhood alfonso like um during the scenes outside w- between the doctor and sophia um, you can often see a servant of some kind in the background either sweeping or or like a driver. They have a driver. Too, yeah, yeah, they have their own driver. So I think that he's always he's always showing servants. And he he even shows that there's a a social hierarchy amongst um, amongst servants um, for the Chris for the New Year getaway. Um, the older um, woman who who takes Cleo to the um, party downstairs. Um, Cleo asks if she should invite the other two maids um, at the party. And then the older woman's like, "No, no, we don't want city maids here. Like they, <laughs> they think they're they're more fancy than the than the people they serve. So even there, there is even a upper class social class, upper class and lower class within uh, the world of of servants, which is really fascinating, and shows that divide of classism even amongst the poorest of the population. And what's so really what's so beautiful about this film is like uh, Alfonso. I think I haven't seen." Obviously, every Mexican film, but I feel like I've seen enough Mexican cinema to know that, you know, indigenous population, the indigenous population is so um, vastly underrepresented in cinema in that country and in Central America as well. And I think that Alfonso is trying to show in this movie how vital the indigenous population is to Mexico and and how they how important they are to every other every person in Mexico, whether you be indigenous or not. And how they're people too, and they deserve to have their stories told. Even the smallest of people have an amazing story to tell. Even Cleo, just a, a maid for this middle class family who nobody knows, her story is just as important as anyone else's. Yeah, and, and again, in Itumama Tambien, they're the backdrop of that film. They're always in the background. You see indigenous people doing the work in the in restaurants or in the hotels, cleaning up after Tenoch in his home, whereas this film is the perspective of an indigenous lower-class citizen in Mexico. And her journey, again, there's really no set plot. It's really just events that happen to Cleo in this film, and she goes through so much in this movie. I mean, she loses her virginity to this man, Furman, who she meets from Adela's cousin, and he gets her pregnant. And what's he do to her when she tells her in the movie tells him in the movie theater is he abandons her immediately and just kind of disappears and this film also has the backdrop of protests and riots in this film where Furman is working to be part of this like army in a way and doing this martial arts but it seems like the martial arts obviously ties in later on on in the riot where um rebellion re- the rebellion yeah. sort of 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 that community in the in the city of Mexico City where um 
uh, Cleo, her water breaks while they're buying the crib, and the man gets shot in that furniture store. So there's a ton of undertones Fairman of that. Fairman caused the death of the child. Probably. That's the stress of that moment is what killed the child. And combine that that combine that moment with the it, the inability to get to the hospital in time, that's what killed killed the baby. And the hospital scene, it's it's so tragic because, you know, you want her to give birth to a healthy baby. You never want to see a stillbirth. But, you, you know, Alfonso did a brilliant job where he hired real doctors and nurses for this delivery it, scene. It's like um, Captain Phillips when Tom Hanks is getting treated by that medic. Exactly. And it, it's a real medic. And the way she speaks to ha- Tom Hanks, she's not acting. It feels like a real officer. Yeah, it brings so much authenticity, makes the f- scene feel real. And it's it's terrible to see the way he sets this entire scene up. You know, you see outside the hospital, all these pregnant women are just waiting outside, holding their bellies, just waiting to be taken into this overcrowded hospital to give birth to a baby. And then when they're inside the birthing room, there's several women giving birth in the same room with just curtains blocking them all. Then, you know, something's definitely wrong when the doctors can't hear anything inside the womb and they take her up into the surgery and she gives birth to a stillborn child, which is so tragic, and she barely gets to say goodbye to it before they start wrapping it up and taking away. Yeah, it's such a it's one of the most tragic scenes I've ever seen. And Kupa Kwan's directing is really um amazing because he just does one shot. The camera doesn't move, it's just a shot on Cleo. Um and then she gives birth to the child, and then in the background of the shot, it's a profile of Cleo and and then they treat the baby um in the background. But also the this it's real time, and I'll, I think Quran wanted to depict how quickly it happens. Something like this, it's just a matter of like two minutes, and then within two minutes, your your baby's gone, wrapped up, and you'll never see her again. And I think that how quickly it happens, and how um, professional the doctors are, it it adds to this huge sadness of a fleeting moment, and it could have been a major impactful moment of her life, but instead, it's just. Of devastating, uh, horrible memory. Yeah, because we learn from Cleo at the end of the film that she didn't want the baby, but also when you give birth to a child, she was going to be the mother. She was going to raise it, obviously, but then she's feeling so much guilt because she maybe wishing, maybe she was wishing the baby wouldn't be born or that she wouldn't have to have the child because she has nothing and she knew it would just make her life even more difficult to have a child. And then so it's just a complex feeling of set of emotions that she's going through right there. And this scene is also brilliantly foreshadowed Earlier on in the film, when they're at the hospital, after she gets her first checkup and uh, the the mother tells her to go check out the newborn, the infants downstairs, and there's the earthquake in the film, and all the babies are okay, but one of the babies that's inside one of those incubation chambers, a ton of rubble from the ceiling fell on top of it. It survived, but still, that was definitely foreshadow for something to come later on in the film. Obviously, for burying a child, Cleo giving birth to a dead baby. There was also another scene of foreshadowing um, when they're celebrating the new year and she's at that party downstairs and um, the older woman pours her a drink and they cheers and the woman cheers her to the health of her baby and having a great new year. And then as she's as Cleo's about to drink from her cup, she's bumped into by someone drops her glass and it, it shatters and then Cuaron gets a shot of the shattered cup on the Several floor. Several seconds. Yeah, like because he, he's like foreshadowing like this is a bad omen for what's going to happen later in the film. Really brilliant. Yeah, I think he also uses nature to maybe depict or foreshadow events that happen to Cleo or her state of mind. You know, we, we see rain, we see the earthquake, we see a forest fire, we see hail. 
Um, and obviously, I think the forest fire is really significant and representative of probably colonization, you know, of the Spanish conquistadors taking over Mexico and conquering it. As yeah, well as the shot of them all firing guns. Yeah, firing yeah. guns at the vastness of the forest, all the upper class people. So I think those are really important moments to see, obviously, representing colonization. And I think that sexism is really well laid out in this film for both both Cleo and for Sophia because what happens to them both? They're, they're both bo left. They're both left by men. And it shows that the unfair situation that women are put into where for Cleo, she gets knocked up by fair men. And then when he finds out, he abandons her. And he's like, hey, I don't need to be here. If I don't want to be here, I'm not going to be here. I've, I, I don't want the responsibility, so screw you. You're never going to see me again. Even threatens her. Yeah, threatens to hurt her. And so, but she, it's a child. She's the woman. She's the one who has to bear the child. So she's she's trapped there with the child by herself. And the same thing with Sophia and the doctor, where he clearly isn't happening happy anymore. Uh, he leaves her in her in his family because selfishly he's like, I don't want this anymore. I've decided like I don't I don't want to be a dad anymore. I don't want to be a husband anymore. I want to go do things. I want to go date this new lady. And so. Once again, with both these characters and what they go through, it I think Quaron is showing how men. When, when a woman dates a man, she's allowed to be picky because she's the one who takes the most risk when dating someone because she posed she takes on the risk of getting pregnant, and pregnancy is a huge responsibility that the woman is taking on. And the man in situations like that with these two guys, they can just say no to it and run away. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I think a mother a mother. I mean, there have been mothers that abandoned kids before, but I think 99.9% .9 of the time, a mother would never leave their child. But I think more than 99.9% .9 of the time, a father would leave their child. You know, we've seen, I mean, just look at statistics all, all across the world. So it happens more often. Men are much more free to not be a parent, even if they knock someone up, even if they get a woman pregnant. And I think he's showing the unfair quality of like, of men not having, not having to take the responsibility if they don't have to. And then the women are stuck with it. Yeah, especially with the father who's clearly got a great job, very well off. You know, they're affluent. They're the middle class in Mexico. So they have money, but he just doesn't want to be in the family anymore, which is horrible. He he he, he lies to them. He says he has to go to Quebec for his, his research. And then we find out later on that he, he was there for a week, and then he's back in Mexico City in the same area as them. I mean, even... Paco and his friends see his father leaving the movie theater as they're waiting outside. And Paco lies to his friend saying, that's not my father. That's not my father. And then we see the father later on right before Cleo gives birth in the elevator. And he offers to go inside. But he's like, oh, really? I, I can't go inside to help you. But everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. So he, he doesn't want the responsibility, like you said, either of them of the family anymore. But also what's interesting, another social class divide where the doctor lies and says, uh, she won't let me go into the operating room with you, but you're going to do great. And then the nurse goes... You can come in if you want, and then he then he lies and says, "Oh, I actually have an appointment, so I can't go." He doesn't really care. He doesn't. He doesn't really care about Cleo at all. It's, and I think it's unfortunate. Like there, you know, this man. He's. I think that he doesn't want to accept the responsibility he has as a father and husband anymore. And it's it's so sad. Like I think for him, he's like just doesn't want to be there anymore. And you can see that portrayed in his first scene. It's a great introduction. Oh yeah, a amazing introduction for a character when he's trying to pull into the driveway. You can tell he's done this a thousand times. I, he's so stubborn. He wants this big car, but it barely fits into his driveway, yet he still he, he wants this cool car. And you can just tell how 
reluctant he is to actually go inside. And he's, like, ripping butts, like, just trying. I think he's, like, trying to f- gather the strength to face the day of seeing his family. Blasting like, music. His yeah. kids are out the door. Yeah. Daddy, daddy's yeah. here. Like, it's such a burden on him to be a father, which is so sad. And it ultimately, it makes him, like, a villain. Like, he is the villain of the story, one of the villains of the story. You know, a man who doesn't want to be with his family. And what's even more sad is he has no responsibility even if he's there. Yeah. He has a servant who takes care of the kids. He just has to be there. So he, he doesn't even have to do any work. He, doesn't he have still to do doesn't want the family. Bare minimum. All he has to do is the bare minimum. Show up. Like, wake up. That's what you're doing in seeing your kids. You don't even want to see them and just kiss them goodbye and kiss them goodnight. That is so tragic. You know, it's horrible. And Sophia... Uh, after she comes home drunk one night, this is after he's been gone for months now, she says to Cleo, we are all alone. Us women are all alone. And obviously that's the theme of the film where the men betray the women in this. Yeah, and it, it's a great scene where she destroys his car. First um, in the city when she, her and Cleo are driving and then she knows that her car can't fit in between those two trucks, but she still just does it anyway because she knows she's going to mess it up. And then also when she returns home drunk one night and she just like venge- vengefully just bashes the car into the <laughs> walls. It's so funny. And she gets out and she's like so satisfied uh, because it was it's just her like she's finally accepted that her husband's not coming back. And she knew he was going to leave. That's when she was saying goodbye to him for his Quebec trip. She's so you can see the desperation on her face and she's like, we're going to be here. And you could it's like she knows she's saying goodbye to him for the first for the last time but she doesn't want to and he he's such a coward he won't even admit what he's really doing yeah and i love how she decides to sell the ford galaxy without telling the husband because they go on the trip so that he can gather all his things but they take the ford galaxy and she's like i already sold it it's gonna be a surprise for your father and so I, I think that's just a way, great way for her to get back in him because, like you said, the Ford Galaxy is a representation of what he thinks he wants, how he doesn't think he has enough, and he needs he needs this cool big car to, to be complete, and he needs to have a mistress, and he needs to be free again, sort of like Julio and Tanosh in Itumama Tambien. Yeah, exactly. And then when she arrives home with the much smaller car, which still fits everyone, you know, that's the right size. Yeah. And there's another great scene of symbolism when uh, when Cleo goes to find Fermin and she finds him in the uh, martial arts training class and then um, the pro- the Professor Zovek shows up to pro- teach a lesson to the class. and he The does... guy who was pulling the truck with his yeah, teeth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you think he's a very silly guy, but then he does this great feat where he's able to balance on one foot um, with the other foot um, pressed against his knee with his eyes closed. And the trick is being able to balance with your eyes closed on the one foot. Because it's much easier to do with your eyes open, but closing your eyes makes it difficult. And it seems super simple at first, but then none of the martial arts students can do it. And then even the people, the spectators try it, and they're all, like, losing balance and falling down trying to balance like he's doing it. And then Quaron shows Cleo, and she's balancing perfectly just like the professor um, without trouble, uh, static, uh, and in, like, a strong, planted, straight as an arrow. And... I think that what he's he's showing with that scene is that uh, Cleo, even though she's just a servant, even though she really doesn't have a life of her own, I think her being able to balance like that is an expression of her purity and her her cleanness, her clean heart and her high morality, and how and even though she's in the lowest class, 
in terms of being a human being, she's in the highest class possible. Yeah, and the slums are, are a really important moment to visit because that's where Femen's from, and he tells her about it inside the hotel after they sleep together that time. And you really see the wealth disparity in Mexico in this slum area because this is where people live, and, you know, it's just covered with mud. There's no roads, and you see, like, there's a show going on for this sort of politician you can hear in the background. Some guy gets shot out of a cannon. He's like, I'm going to bring water. Like, you're fighting for water. That's what you – these people don't have water. That's what that's what you can assume that this this little army of warriors are being trained for is to have that riot in the city to get rights to get just water to where they live because you can assume they they literally have nothing they live in these little shacks you know where Ramon lives and everything so the disparity is immense and then the film opens with the waste of water to just clean a driveway to clean shit off a driveway water is being used and these people here in the slums don't even have water to drink yeah it's a brilliant contrast of how what how accessible water is for some people and how inaccessible it is for many people still to this day billions of people don't have access to clean water which is something that we should never ever ever take for granted yeah and i think water it's relevant in this film that the theme of it is throughout it obviously that opening with the water and then the slums they don't have water the water to put out the fire in the the forest fire during the christmas new year's eve party and then i think the ocean is very significant too at the end of the film and i love how both films the third act take place at the ocean at a beach and the the oceans it could be a symbol for rebirth as well for her character where yeah she basically dies inside when her when she gives birth to the dead child and then um she's lost like maybe it looks like she's lost her will to just be herself again and then saving the saving the children in the water is like a rebirth for her character being born again into this family and um, becoming Cleo again. Yeah, because she could have died. She doesn't know how to swim. And mm-hmm. Sophia tells the kids not to swim too far because Cleo doesn't know how to swim. But she goes out in the ocean despite the fact that she's a petite woman. These waves are huge. And she can't swim. But she does it anyway. And she saves the children's lives. It's in, it's an incredible moment. It makes me cry like a baby when she brings him to the shore. <laughs> and the entire family is just hugging her, telling her that they love her. I, I weep. At that moment, I also weep during the stillborn scene as well. Yeah, but that that shot of them all embracing each Cleo on the beach with the sun set in the background, it's one of my favorite shots because it's such a long take as well. Like the scene starts, um, the scene follows Cleo walking back and forth from the ocean to drying off Paco to saving Pepe, uh, pe- uh, Pepe to sa- to saving Paco and um, the girl Sophie Sophie in the water and then bringing them back to shore. And then the family embraces her. That's all one shot. And, and it, there's no music, but Alfonso's sound design, when the camera it, it hovers above the waves and follows her deeper and deeper into the ocean. And then just the sound of the crashing waves, it sounds so powerful and terrifying. It's really a terrifying scene. Thanks to the great sound design of the ocean sounds, it really fe- feels imposing and, and, and really horrifying in, in a horrible situation. And then the camera comes back with them. She brings the kids to shore. And then uh, they all embrace Cleo. And the sun is setting right in between them in the middle of all five of them. And it's such, all six of them, it's such an amazing shot. Perfectly timed with the sun right above the horizon line. It's just like a, a, a magical moment for filmmaking. It became the main poster of the movie as yeah. well. That's the main poster that they captured in a long take. It's absolutely incredible. It really is. And just the, the filmmaking of Alfonso Cuaron 
is just on another level from 99% of filmmakers. You know, he's one of the greats. He's one of the greats to ever do it. And I, 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 I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, and I think one, there's so much to, to, to like break down and analyze in this movie, so much imagery. I think one of the most shocking imagery images for me that Alfonso uses for symbolism is the door of the family. The doors look like prison bars, if you ever noticed that. And the doors get shut on Cleo. There's a shot where she Sophia closes the door on Cleo and Adela. And it just looks like they're looking at bars after the door closes because they're prisoners kind of in this lower class world that they can never escape. Yeah, and also like when the grandmother takes the kids out um, with the driver, who gets left behind? The dog and the maid. Mm -hmm. So she's, again, paralleled with the dog. Doesn't even get to go out. And like just her watching the kids go, I think think moments like that for Cleo, just watching the kids go out with the grandmother and she's not allowed to go, I think they're – really sad moment that she has to deal with every day of like watching the family be a family and she's not included i think that's what she wants more than anything to just be part of the family yeah but again she doesn't even have a place to sit in the living room she has her own small cushion and again at the beach later on when sophia takes them all all the kids and sophia are, are crowded on this bench eating ice cream and then cleo is just standing next to them eating her ice cream yeah Really, really brilliant filmmaking. It's it's beautiful. It might be his best movie. It's so hard to pick, but it's it's a genius film. Absolutely adore it. It's it's really, really exceptionally well made. Um, do you have any trivia about uh, Roma? Or? I did uh, all the trivia in the episode. I think I, I did yeah. so too as well. You know, we we kind of just been doing this new thing where we just sprinkle it in through the episode. So thanks everyone. Salt bay it in. Yeah, salt bay in <laughs> trivia into the into the episode <laughs> analysis. Thanks so much for tuning into this Alfonso Cuarón special on Itumama Tambien y and Roma y Roma y Roma. I'll say it in Espanol. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to become a patron at patreoncom slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much tuning in around the world. Adios. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.